Hello, and welcome to our next episode of the Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Tom Hawkins, Investment Director from Tilney's London office. I'm talking with Chris Godding, our Chief Investment Officer, and Ben Seeger-Scott, our Head of Multi-Asset Funds, about the latest market reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic and what the outlook for the future might look like. We're once again recording the podcast from the comfort of our own homes today. But, but before we begin, here is some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. So, starting with you, Ben. We're now in the fourth week of lockdown, which has just been extended by the government. In your view, how and when do we emerge from this? Well, um, thank you for the question. And there is no easy solution. Um, I think what we have seen is some of the guidance has slowly undulated over time. The the government, depending on, on which way it's it's spun, the government has always been quite clear that uh, the the resolution, at least the lockdown, is likely to be data dependent. And we all obviously it's, it's human nature to want to have some certainty and some endpoints. Um, but the reality is that's not what we're being given at the moment. All we have are a series of review points. And there are several factors tied into that as to, to when any lockdown is likely to end. I think key amongst that, and we've talked about it both in some of our publications and on, on the podcast previously, a lot of that is going to be a, a drop or levelling off in the fatality rate. We've talked there's de- various different methods between confirmed cases that gives a bit of variability um, and it makes it difficult difficult to compare different regions. But I think what most uh, countries and economies are concerned about is the fatality rate, the risk that health services um, are, are overwhelmed. So I think one of the first things we need to see is a sustained drop in the fatality rate. Uh, if you look at the data, there are some uh, unusual patterns and anomalies in there, particularly around the times of weekends. We tend to see a drop in reported fatalities and then a spike uh, just after, which suggests some some data artefact. But I think if over a longer term we start to see that levelling off, that is a necessary precondition, but not the only precondition, um, to start to see some, some, of these, uh, some of these orders relaxed. Importantly, a lot of re- relaxation of lockdown is likely to be uh, around how much capacity there is in the, uh, within the NHS and other health services to deal with a reacceleration of, of infections. I think what we can do is look at some other countries, particularly those that are further ahead than we are, the likes of China, Spain and Italy as a guide. Um, but I think each country is likely to take a different approach. China is now largely back to uh, something close to normal operation. Obviously, it has all sorts of challenges in its supply chain, but the majority of the country is is now back at work. And that took sort of a, a month to, to six weeks for, for different parts to get up to speed. Spain and Italy are still in lockdown, but looking more towards uh, relaxing some of those. And I think that does tie into what we're seeing globally 
uh, a lot of talk now of exit strategies. And that's something we're focusing on. Uh, it is likely to be in the medium term, but how and when do countries globally emerge from these? If you look at areas such as the US, the US is uh, similar-ish in terms of the development pathway to the UK. They're considering some relaxations, but that's not going to be before the 1st of May. Um, Iceland are talking about the 4th of May. Um, even in France, they're, they've just extended their lockdown, but that's likely to be reviewed on the 11th of May. So on the current run rate, most of these review periods do to seem to be uh, in mid-May. Um, but what's going to come out of that is a lot of coordination. Uh, the US is talking about it. European countries are talking about it. There's no point one country restarting its economy, potentially relaxing its lockdown measures if it's not done in a coordinated fashion. And I think there's going to be a lot more news flow uh, around this over, over the coming weeks as people start looking beyond this period of economic um, paralysis towards how, how we get out on the other side. Um, and I think what is going to be really important for that uh, is management information. And just as every business struggles without accurate management information uh, to, to understand how its business is operating, it is very difficult to understand how the economy is dealing with the spread uh, of the virus without testing. And that's really, we talked about it last time, that still hasn't come uh, to fruition. Unfortunately, the two tests, the antigen test that determines whether or not you already have it, is not yet available in scale. And the antibody test that lets us know how much of the population may have been infected without us knowing that the most recent batch of tests the government has purchased proved to be unreliable. So I think that is uh, effectively hampering some of the efforts, partly in the UK, but it's also a global factor. Um, that's hampering efforts to, to get to some sort of relaxation of the lockdown. Thanks. Um, so once the lockdown is lifted... Um, one would assume it still takes some time to get back up to normal. How is economic life likely to be different in this kind of environment? Well, I think you can take some guidance from certainly the economic and social policies that were trying to be instigated before the lockdown. Those are likely to remain in some way, shape or form for the foreseeable future. We're certainly not going to be going back uh, to full life and business as normal. How long that could last, um, I don't know. It could be sooner or later, but it's possible uh, that we won't see a significant relaxation getting back to full normality until either antiviral drugs or vaccines are widely available. And that could be a year or two uh, away. And really what the government is looking to do is try and get activity and productivity back as soon as possible. You need economic activity. You need the production of goods and services in an economy in turn to support society, paying taxes, supporting the NHS, enabling uh, people's standards of livings. Um, but really, it's about balancing uh, the public health requirements um, against economic needs. And the two are interlinked. But that said, I think full lockdowns are, are not likely to be uh, imposed, I think, over the whole of that period. We're likely to see varying degrees what I think the authorities will look for is when you move from this full lockdown to a more relaxed state, we're still likely to see social distancing in effect for some time. And I think it is important to highlight, as we've repeatedly said, these, these events tend to come in waves. And it seems to me all but inevitable once you relax those lockdowns, that you'll start to see new waves of infection. And the government will be carefully trying to balance economic activity against, the, against not really overwhelming uh, the health services. 
So I think what you're likely to see is a dialing up and dialing down of uh, of lockdowns and economic activity as this pathway progresses. You're likely to see uh, several waves. It probably means we're going to see rolling lockdowns. So you might see lockdowns relax, social distancing remaining in effect. And then as the government sees more infections starting to pick up, maybe you'll look more towards a sort of amber signalling uh, type environment. And then the point at which the government thinks there's a risk that the, that the infections really start to accelerate uh, beyond control, sort of the, the environment we're in at the moment, then you may see a lockdown imposed for a period, relaxed for a period, tightened, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think what is worth highlighting, full lockdown and the serious economic consequences uh, are quite severe. What you may see in the early stages as the lockdown is relaxed, it might be done by region. There is some talk of, of particular segments of society. Um, early on, what I do think you'll see is allowing those people that are in non-essential jobs, but jobs they can't do on a work from home basis. Perhaps some of those individuals, construction is, is, is a key area, but others as well. You might see some of those relax so people can get back to productivity, um, whilst those in some service jobs, those that can do work from home type jobs will continue on a work from home basis. Maybe some people will go back to offices, but you'll see um, efforts to reduce density and reduce the number of people, say, traveling uh, in and out of cities uh, at peak times, trying to stagger those uh, and relax the number of people in at any one time. And I think tied in with that, uh, testing is still going to be key. I talked about it before. I keep talking about it. Testing is going to be the game changer. And you're likely to see, I think, these wrapped in with back to work processes. You'll probably see if you have enough tests available, very aggressive testing of anyone with symptoms. And if as soon as people are found with symptoms, isolation of those individuals and then very rapid uh, and significant tracking across all contacts of anyone that's potentially been infected. Those are the ty types of policies, actually, that South Korea implemented very early on. And that's been partly attributed to the success of South Korea in really containing this virus. So we may see some of those aspects coming in. There is an interesting privacy question that I think is going to be uh, up for debate in the public eye pretty soon. And that's whether or not you can use mobile phone data, possibly even as some countries have tried to do, combining it with some sort of health data. And that really those apps uh, can be very useful in both, once you have identified uh, an individual that's infected, they are very useful devices for very rapidly uh, seeing who that individual has been in contact with. So I think that is likely to crop up as well. But also some of the, the new uh, skills and, and work practices that we've seen develop very quickly because of the virus, greater work from home capacity, more use of information technology, more flexibility in business practices. Potentially, these will continue into the longer term. And who knows, that might even help uh, lift some of the some of the productivity conundrums that we've been experienced recently in some of the economic data. Um, but but talking about that, perhaps if I could turn the tables uh, and think about productivity, Tom, what, what's been your experience working from home? And in particular, I'd be interested to hear uh, feedback you might have had from clients about the recent volatility. Well, I mean, it may surprise some listeners to know, but actually working from home has been a surprisingly smooth transition. Um, credit must undoubtedly go to our dedicated IT support staff. Um, I think it's fair to say that they were really on the front foot, uh, a fairly Herculean effort 
meant that they managed to get the very large majority of staff working remotely for the end of the second week in March. And whilst I can't speak from every, for everybody, because needless to say, people will have their own personal experiences. And certainly the, um, the challenges of homeschooling has had its ups and its downs. Uh, personally, I've actually enjoyed um, taking at least two hours of my day back, which would otherwise be spent commuting into central London. And in its place, I've been spending a lot more time with my young family, um, exercise and, of course, enjoying this glorious spring sunshine. So I think to your point, it would be absolutely fascinating to see how a forced environment of people working remotely will change broader working practices in the months and years to come. We're also very conscious that um, our broader teams um, do not feel isolated. And so we've been having conference calls by team every other day, as well as a minimum of two weekly uh, investment forums with our research department and fellow investment managers. We also acknowledge that this change to working practices has come at an extremely unsettling time for clients as they've seen a heightened level of market volatility. And as such, in the absence of our preferred face-to-face -face meetings, we've made a conscious effort to significantly up our lines of communication. In fact, I don't think in the 11 years I've been working at Tilney, I've actually managed to speak to as many of my clients as I have done over the past month, whether that be via Skype, Zoom, FaceTime or the old-fashioned telephone. And clients have, um, by and large, been amazingly supportive during what has undoubtedly been a tricky time. And I believe that this is not only owing to the regular communication, but our consistent investment approach, and namely a focus on high-quality businesses, which are neither economically or financially leveraged, and benefit from enduring competitive advantages. So this means that our portfolios have actually been uh, particularly robust over the first quarter of 2020, with many of our active stock pickers significantly outperforming. In fact, there's very, every chance that many of those same businesses, particularly those that are net cash and enjoy a high level of interest cover, will emerge stronger for net, from an episode such as this, as their more indebted, poorly run competitors are unable to survive. So on that note, Chris, if I may bring you into conversation, what are your thoughts now that equities have had something of a resurgence? Oh, well, thanks, Tom. That's an uh, interesting perspective there. I think it has been a volatile time. There's no, no question. I think it's, it's quite unsettling. And the volatility has worked both ways. The last couple of weeks have definitely reminded us why panicking out um, and trading can be harmful to your wealth. And we've tried to sort of drive that home in, in, in markets where you have volatility uh, three or four times the norm, uh, it's, it can be difficult to get the timing right and it's probably best to just stick, it, stick with it. Um, but you know, since the lows on the 23rd of March, we, uh, the S&P 500 in the, in the US and the Bavespa in Brazil are up 26%, the DAX is up 22% in Germany. And the Nikkei uh, 225 in Japan and the UK are up 16%, all in local currency terms. So really 
very healthy bounce. And sterling has also rallied 8% against the dollar. And you may remember from some of the past podcasts, we've talked about the, um, the, the shortage of dollars around the world and the fact that sterling came under a lot of pressure as a result of that. So it's very, it's very good to see sterling uh, sort of essentially being a, a barometer of the relaxation of those dollar pressures. Um, but it's also up 7% against the euro in the same period. So in sterling terms, the UK has pretty much performed in line with the S&P and the DAX. Um, and importantly, probably more importantly from from our from investment perspective, is the credit spreads, which almost like a, the telltale of the uh, the markets, have have improved substantially. And that's the spread of anything that's sort of corporate credit over government credit in terms of the yield yield spread, uh, and that narrowing of spreads reflects the extraordinary efforts that have been made by central banks to improve liquidity and the flow of credit in the economy. And that has essentially been very successful. Um, the spreads still remain elevated, but they, as I say, they have significantly improved. And in the US, for instance, the, the average high yield bond at the, at, the, at the trough was trading at 12 times the yield of a US 10-year treasury, um, reflecting essentially extreme stress. And the current yield is still 10 times uh, the 10-year, um, but it, that, that shows the sort of easing of, of strain, e- easing of concerns. And I think you know once, now that the Fed is also buying um, high-yield ETFs, that should um, bring the yields in further from here. So uh, we were sort of sticking with our high-yield position in portfolios. Um, when as I said, well, equities were close to their low on the 23rd of March. We were fairly vocal uh, about the risk reward being offered to investors because we're kind of taking a long-term view, um, looking at what was implied in the valuations of equities. And we came to the, the opinion that uh, there was about 10% downside risk and about 50% upside risk. Now, that ratio is moderated given the big moves that we've had from the lows. But we still see the ratio of around two to one, um, or specifically about 15% downside and 25% upside. Um, now, I, I would say that this is a fast developing situation. Um, markets are moving uh, a lot on a daily basis, and we have to constantly recalibrate based on the economic developments, uh, which you know I don't think we quite know the full impact yet, and a bit like sort of Ben's point about the waves. I think the market is going to be similar in terms of waves as we as we get waves of infection, waves of economic data. Um, it may be a case of two steps forward, one step back in markets. And so, from an investment strategy perspective, it's always good to sort of, if you're putting money to work, to do it over a, a reasonable period of time, so you don't get caught out by those those uh, peaks and troughs. Um, because you know, at the moment, given everything that's changing, the, the estimation error is quite high, and it's very dangerous to ex- extrapolate what we're seeing in the short term. Um, so we have to keep an eye on growing capital in the long term. You know, there's a classic rule, 60 to 1 rule in navigation, which highlights the um, the estimation error quite well. In some, if you're if you have a one degree error in your in your flying around the equator. 
um, by the time you've got around to the other side, you'd be 400 miles off course. Um, so it's important as you're moving along the timeline here um, and is to adjust the course and, and to recalibrate as I said, to get, to get things um, back on track. Thanks, Chris. So from, from what I've read, the support from central banks and governments seems pretty open-ended. What are the longer-term implications? So it's a, it's a really good question. We've got uh, an extraordinary amount of uh, spending coming out of governments uh, and extraordinary support out of um, central banks. And I think it's something we're going to be talking about for a long while. Um, it's It has been critical in the short term, so I'm not... Um, I'm going to say that it hasn't been necessary, but I, uh, you know, ultimately I'm a Schumpeterian and I believe in the creative dis- creation and destruction of capital in, in a cycle uh, that cleanses us, the system of inefficient capital allocation. I think we had quite a, f- a fair amount of that um, prior to the crisis. And I think um, if central banks and governments prevent that from happening, it's very difficult for the economy to find a new equilibrium, essentially to cleanse cleanse itself of inefficient businesses. Um, the consensus view at the moment is that the measures put in place over the last month or so will be here for quite some time. So we're not thinking about sort of, uh, a, a, a sudden stop in terms of liquidity. And so the, there is a potential for that excess liquidity in the system to lead to another asset bubble of some kind. Um, and each crisis over the last 10 years uh, has resulted in an increase in the size of central bank balance sheets. Uh, and according to JP Morgan, the, the total size of the uh, G4, uh, four largest uh, economies, central bank balance sheets will rise to approximately 58% of GDP by the time this crisis is sort of, uh, over. And, and just to put that in perspective, this compares to 18% prior to the great financial crisis. So and that growth, that is of enormous growth, means that there's a lot more cash in the system. And as a result, JP Morgan also looked at how much equities would have to rise just to restore the cash to equity balance that we had prior to this crisis. Uh, and equities would have to rise around 30% because of the huge amount of cash that's in the system. So liquidity can feed, uh, can, if it's not used in the real economy, can feed the financial economy and it can lead to um, you know, financial bubbles in a, in a way. Um, now, real investment in this case may take some of that excess cash uh, but uh, in general, I would say, though this to your to point of your question, Tom, the the enormous spending in the system and the amount of the increase in capital uh, is it provides a pretty um, positive backdrop for risk assets in the long term. And in your view, when they rein in the balance sheets, will there be another crash? Um, I, I think most not. I don't think they're going to do that for a while. Uh, and the ev- the historic evidence, the recent evidence, have shown us that um, they they tend to uh, be very gun shy. Uh, central banks and, and governments tend to be very gun shy of doing that. Uh, but yes, I mean, once we start to correct the excess, um, there has to be. It's a bit like sort of taking toys away. 
from the children, or um, there, there's um, there's going to be uh, a little bit of uh, disruption, but that's not going to be a while. What we will have to see, as I say, if if central banks have through each crisis they've they've continued to reinforce the um, the, the support and uh, you know there's a building moral hazard here, um, and so that's why you know I think. You know, we'll have to keep an eye on the situation, see what the the central banks are doing, see what governments are doing, and as I say, adjust the course accordingly based on on that those on that data. Thanks, Chris. On that note, thank you both very much for your comments. We'll be back again soon with a new episode. If you have any feedback, questions, or comments, please send us an email at podcast at tilney.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Thank you.